is a warm, sunny day in Côte Saint-Louis, Quebec, and we have another nice show for you today at uh, the Côte Saint-Louis Telephone Broadcasting Service. We come to you every day at 2 p.m. You call in, uh, or you listen online on our podcast feed, which you can do as well. On the show today, we have author Ariella Friedman, who will be talking about her second novel, which is called A Joy to be Hidden. My friend was writing a book about New York, and she wanted to talk to me about it because we had spent time in New York together. Um, We both lived there in the late 90s, which is the period in which my novel was set. And we'd both been there at really formative periods in our lives, in our early 20s. We then have the Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess. And finally, we have Adrian Rodriguez, who's going to be uh, singing Besame Mucho. That is today's show. And here is Ariella Friedman talking about her second novel. Hi, my name is Ariella Friedman, and I'm the author of two novels. The first is called Arabic for Beginners, and it came out in 2017 with Linda Leith Press. It was shortlisted for the Quebec Writers Federation First Novel Prize, and it won the Mona Elaine Edelman Prize for Fiction, um, which is given out by the Jewish Public Library. I'm going to talk about my second novel today. It's called A Joy to be Hidden, and in 2019, it was a finalist for the Quebec Writers Federation Fiction Prize. It's the story of a young woman named Alice Stein. She's a graduate student living in the East Village in the late 1990s. She loses her father and her grandmother in a single year, and she's given the task of cleaning out her grandmother's Brooklyn apartment. In the process of doing so, she starts to unlock a family secret. Accompanied by a precocious downstairs neighbor, a 12-year-old girl named Persephone, She sets out on a kind of a quest to understand her family and herself. In the process, she discovers lost children and buried love affairs, a village in Hungary and an artist's loft in Harlem, histories she wants to believe and people she can't trust. It's a little bit of a buildings roman or a coming-of-age story. Uh, It's also this sort of a detective story or it's not a conventional detective story but it's a story about looking for something and looking for something in order to unlock the secret of who you are and one of the places that this book came from was a conversation that I had um, with a friend my friend was writing a book about New York and she wanted to talk to me about it because we had spent time in New York together Um, we'd both lived there in the late 90s, which is the period in which my novel was set. And we'd both been there at really formative periods in our lives, in our early 20s. Um, And we both had very, very vivid memories of that time period. Um, Scientists sometimes talk about a memory bump between the age of about 20 and 25, where everything is just so potent and so real because you're experiencing it all for the first time. And when I was between 20 and 25, I lived in New York City, and it changed my life. As I was talking to her about her New York book, I thought, I want to write a New York book, and I want to write a New York book because I want to live there in my imagination again. I could access it all as if it was frozen in amber. There was so much detail that I could recover as I entered into the process of recollection. 
I wanted to write a novel. This is by no means a memoir, and I'm always really explicit about that because the character in this book does a lot of reckless and illegal things that I myself might consider, but would never actually have the guts to accomplish. Um, But what is very real to me in this book is a sense of a place and time and a sense of a place and time that I lived and that I wanted to do justice to as best as I could. It's a little strange to talk about a New York book right now in a time when New York is suffering and changing once again. And um, I have a friend who's reading this for the first time. And when he wrote to me about the book, he said, your New York is bringing back um, my New York. He lived in New York in the 70s. And it's also making me think a lot about New York as a city. Cities have their own characters. And both of my books are city books. Arabic for Beginners is a book that is as much about Jerusalem as it is about any of its protagonists. And A Joy to be Hidden is all about the frustrating, dirty romance of New York, which I had hoped to capture um, in a period before the city changed, um, which in this book is the period of 9-11. So I'm going to just read a little bit um, from my book about New York City before I talk more about the content of the book. Uh, This is from A Joy to be Hidden. Though it made no sense at all, I lived that period with a preemptive sense of nostalgia. Soon, after all, it would become the past. It seemed perverse to be nostalgic for the present, not only because I inhabited it, but also because everyone else was busy being nostalgic for the storied years of the 70s and 80s, for the city on fire. When I first arrived in New York, it was already beginning to lose its edge to become safer, more comfortable. The East Village was changing because of people like me, writers and artists and students living east of third and taking their first baby steps into Alphabet City. The week I moved in, I was welcomed by an anti-gentrification march down the street. It was not aimed at me directly, but it might as well have been. But it turns out I was right to feel like there was something precious and vanishing about that time. For all that New York had already changed, it was about to change much more. We thought that history was over and that liberal democracy would last forever. Giuliani was mayor and the Twin Towers still stood. In retrospect, it was a golden period, albeit a late decadent fin de siècle fool's gold, a false sense of freedom. The internet existed. I had a dial-up connection, an AOL account, and there were rumors that the library was digitizing its catalog. But we were not yet all ensnared in the net that would grow so fast and so big that it would tangle us all before we had a chance to think about it, nor in the web of surveillance that would follow the fall of the towers. Our fall. In graduate school in the 90s, it was fashionable to believe, not in reality, but only in the real. The scare marks enclosing what could not truly be named. Still, that was the last time in my life that truly felt real, and I don't think anything else has been entirely real since. 
I felt so much back then in the first years of my 20s, before the false apocalypse of Y2K and the true disaster of 9-11, before the billionaire mayor and the disnification of Times Square, before the East Village was Little Japan and back when Hell's Kitchen still deserved the name for its combination of butchery and vice. In the last years of the century, in the last years of the millennium, at the end of the empire, in the first years of my 20s, in the last months of her life. So that final sentence in the last months of her life um, refers to the character's grandmother. And when the novel opens, Alice Stein is going through her Brooklyn apartment and uh, she's cleaning out the apartment after her grandmother had died. The title of the novel is from a quote by Donald Winnicott that I had really early on in the process of writing the book. And it was very important to me in shaping the story and in my own understanding of both of Alice's story and the stories of the different characters in the book. The quote is, it is a joy to be hidden and a disaster not to be found. And what I found so compelling about that quote was that idea that there are two different things that we want from other people. We want to be seen by them, but we also want to protect ourselves from them. Um, We want to conceal ourselves from them, but we also want the intimacy of being known. Alice doesn't know very much about her grandmother, and when she goes through her apartment, she ends up finding things which indicate a much richer story than anything that she has encountered. And the arc of the novel is partly the arc of Alice getting to learn more about her grandmother, Helen's story. One strange thing that happened over the course of um, writing and editing this novel is I ended up having the experience of uh, cleaning out um, an apartment after the death of a family member. I'd never done that before, and when I wrote the book, I was imagining it. I wasn't describing something I'd experienced. I have the sentence at the beginning of the book about the lesson um, that it is to clean out an apartment after the death of an owner, and I write, it is a stoic exercise. Nothing else will convince you as quickly of the futility of stuff the absurdity of the accumulation of objects and the vanity of ownership because almost everything in that house was trash. So what I wanted to show Alice in the process of encountering is this whole archive of a life that um, isn't meaningful to anybody anymore except when she encounters this uh, jewel, this precious object and The preciousness is um, literal. She finds a ring and a purse at the back of a closet, along with a hidden stash of gold coins and um, a photograph and a certificate that indicates that her grandmother had spent some time in Bellevue. So she really finds all of these different elements of treasure or elements of discovery, which aren't just valuable in themselves, They're really valuable as a way of getting to know her family and ultimately as a way of getting to learn things that she doesn't understand about her own personal history. 
I have her find these objects in a closet and my character Alice, uh, she's a little bit related to Alice in Wonderland. She's got some of that same intrepid curiosity. I was thinking a lot as I wrote the book about stories of journeying girls and stories of discovery, which have to do with them going on a trip that is a little bit of a riddle and where the end point is not always clear. So my Alice, um, my Alice doesn't go through a looking glass. Um, she goes into a closet and when she comes out of that closet, something about her has changed and something about the direction of her life has changed. And the course of the book explores the consequences of those changes uh, that begin when she starts to uncover the details of her grandmother's story and of her grandmother's life. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning that she has a a strange partner in this quest. Um, so Alice is living in a building in the East Village and below her is a girl, a girl who's sort of on the cusp between um, girlhood and becoming a teenager um, and then becoming a woman. And that girl's name is Persephone. She's named after the underworld story of uh, the girl who was kidnapped by Hades and who was mourned by her mother so much that in the end, the compromise that her mother, uh, Ceres the Earth, struck with her kidnapper, Hades, the king of hell, was that she would spend half the year above the ground and half the year underground with Hades. And uh, for the Greeks, this is the origin story of the seasons that when Ceres has her daughter Persephone, she just flowers and um, the sun shines and the world blooms. But when Persephone goes underground and is with Hades, then it is winter. When I was writing the story of my Perry or my Persephone, I was also thinking about this poem by Evan Boland called The Pomegranate. And I'm going to mention it now because Evan Boland, the great Irish poet, she died last week. And this poem was one of the things which helped me think about the ways that old stories uh, form new stories which is one of the central preoccupations of my novel. So I'm actually now not going to read from my novel. I'm going to read a little bit of Evan Boland's poem, The Pomegranate. The only legend I have ever loved is the story of a daughter lost in hell and found and rescued there. Love and blackmail are the gist of it. Ceres and Persephone, the names. And the best thing about the legend is I can enter it anywhere and have. As a child in exile in a city of fogs and strange consonants, I read it first and at first I was an exiled child in the crackling dusk of the underworld. The stars blighted. Later, I walked out in a summer twilight, searching for my daughter at bedtime. When she came running, I was ready to make any bargain to keep her. I carried her back past white beams and wasps and honey-scented buddleas, 
but I was serious then, and I knew winter was in store for every leaf on every tree on that road was unescapable for each one we passed, and for me. It is winter, and the stars are hidden. I climb the stairs and stand where I can see my child asleep beside her teen magazines, her can of Coke, her plate of uncut fruit, the pomegranate. How did I forget it? She could have come home and been safe and ended the story and all our heartbroken searching, but she reached out a hand and plucked a pomegranate. She put out her hand and pulled down the French sound for apple and the noise of stone and the proof that even in the place of death at the heart of legend, in the midst of rocks full of unshed tears, ready to be diamonds by the time the story was told a child can be hungry. I could warn her. There's still a chance. The rain is cold. The road is flint-colored. The suburb has cars and cable television. The veiled stars are above ground. It is another world. But what else can a mother give her daughter but such beautiful rifts in time? If I defer the grief, I will diminish the gift. The legend will be hers as well as mine. She will enter it as I have. She will wake up. She will hold the papery flesh skin in her hand and to her lips. I will say nothing. So that is the end of Even Bowen's um, beautiful poem, uh, The Pomegranate. And my hope in writing this book is um, to do justice to an inheritor of um, her Persephone as well, and to do justice to the idea of a beautiful rift in time and the ways that stories repeat. So in my book, the characters are repeating stories that uh, were written long before they came into existence. They were written by their mothers and by their grandmothers, and they are involved in the repetition of those stories, even when they don't know what those stories contain. And one of the things that I decided over the course of this book was I was going to give Alice some answers to her quest, but not the answers that she expects and not all of the answers that she's looking for, because there is always an element of uncertainty in our search for origin stories. There are things that we learn and things that we know, and there are things that we never get to unfold. Um, I'm, I'll end by saying that this is a time when all of our plots have been disrupted. We don't know the end of the story that we're living right now. I've found books a really soothing companion in all of this uncertainty, and I hope that stories can bring you some comfort and meaning during this period of suspension. Uh, and I wish everybody happy reading and um, a happy ending. Thank you. The following is brought to you by Recreation CSL and is an excerpt from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts. Hello everyone, bonsoir, good evening. Thank you for coming and spending the next couple of hours with me at Broadway Happy Hour. So this is Never Enough. Now this is a super hard song to sing, 
Um, uh, where did I put it? But uh, like even the girl in the movie couldn't sing it. You know, the actor that had to be like recorded by someone else. So let's see what happens. Hopefully, all of you at home are going to be singing at the tops of your lungs to co to cover me. It's going to be an awful key for me. I'm trying to hold my breath, let it stay this way, can't let this moment end. You set off a dream in me, getting loud now, can you hear it echoing? I'm going to go down the octave. Take my hand, will you share this with she said those words and that song I'd be a rich man great where am I ah Hamilton this one's for Caitlin Berger hey Caitlin Despite our estrangement, I'm your man. 
submissive subject, my royal, loyal subject, forever and ever, and ever and ever and ever, you'll be back like before, I will fight the fight and win the war, for your decided to rejoin the human race. And Ephraim, I want you to be here. Before the parade passes by, I'm gonna go and taste Saturday's high life. Before the parade passes by, I'm gonna get some life back into my life. I'm ready to move out and run. I've had enough of just a passing by life with the rest of them and the best of them. Pardon me if my old spirit is showing. 
spending Saturday nights with all of you. You know, physically together, but it's like we're together. So, and this is the impossible dream. To dream the impossible dream. This, this is like originally a French song, right, Marty? Who was the composer? Who can tell me who was the composer original? Isn't it Jacques Brel? I think Jacques Brel wrote this La Tête. I think that's right, yeah. I don't know it in French at all, but beautiful song. To dream the impossible dream To fight the unbeatable foe To bear with unbearable sorrow To run where the brave do not go To right the impossible wrong To love pure and just from afar To try when your arms are too weary Star, this is my quest to follow that star, no matter how hopeless, no matter how far, to fight for the right without question or pause, to be willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause. And I know if I'll only be true to this glorious quest, and my heart will be peaceful and calm.
finally real applause. I live for the applause, applause, applause. Oh, goodness. Ladies and gentlemen of Broadway Happy Hour, I'd like to propose a toast. Here's to the ladies who lunch, everybody laughs. Lounging in their caftans and planning a brunch on their own behalf. Off to the gym and then a fitting, cleaning their fat. I'm looking grim, cause they've been sitting, choosing a
shut up, Nick, and start singing. I am what I am. I am my own special creation. So come take a look, give me the look or the ovation. It's my world that I want to have a little pride in. My world, and it's not a place I have to hide in. Life's not worth a damn till you can say, Hey, world, I am what I am. I am what I am. I don't want praise. I don't want pity. I bang my own drum. Something gets noise. I think it's pretty. So, so what if I love each feather and each spangle? Why not try to see things from a different angle? Your life is a sham till you can shout how that I am what I am. I am what I am, and what I am needs no excuse. Sometimes the ace, sometimes the deuces. There's one life and there's no return and no deposit. One life, so it's time to open up your closet. Life's not worth a damn till you can say, hey world, I am. too much of these tunes. Each one is going to be like about a minute, but I just think this may be fascinating. I want you to wrap your heads around this. These songs, these jazz standards that were written in like the, some of them in the 20s, 30s, 40s, they became hits and were, I mean, it was the entire basis for live performance. So you'd go to the clubs and there were bands playing this music and i'm not a jazz musician at all but i have such a deep respect for it here you go have fun i get no kick from champagne beer alcohol doesn't thrill me at all so tell me why should it be true that i get a kick out of you some like the bob type of Midnight 
to work with John Gilbert, in fact. This one's for Arlene Cher. She requested it last week. No one to talk with all by myself. No one to walk with, but I'm happy on the shelf. In this behaving, I'm saving my love for you. I know for certain the one I love. I'm through with flirting. It's just you I'm thinking of. They misbehaving. I'm saving my love for you. Like Jack Horner in the corner. Don't go nowhere. Why do I care? Your kisses are worth waiting for. Believe me. I don't stay out late. Don't care to go. I'm home about it. Just me and my radio. We misbehaving. I'm saving my love for and out of these gorgeous jazz tunes, we've got some of the most glorious ballads like this one. <clears throat> I'm going to have a little sip of water. I love this one. There's a somebody I'm longing to see. I hope that she turns out to be someone who I'm a little lamb who's lost in the woods. 
up on you, eh? My God, what a song. There were bells on the hill, but I never heard them ringing, never heard them at all, till there was you. There were birds in the sky, but I never saw them winging, I For Tracy. Heart, don't fail me now. Courage, don't desert me. Don't turn back now that I believe. People always say life is full of choices. No one ever mentions fear or how the world would seem so vast. Road. I know someone's waiting 
concludes this segment from Broadway Happy Hour with Nick Burgess, presented by the Siegel Center for Performing Arts and brought to you by the Parks and Recreation Department of Cote St. Luke. Today's Corona Serenade is Besame Mucho by Consuelo Valequez, sung by tenor Adrian Rodriguez. Hello everyone, I'm uh, Adrian Rodriguez, aka Don Adriano. I'm the host of the event. And um, I wanted to congratulate uh, Grace, uh, no, Maria Inez Silver, who won the contest for the Mother's Day uh, that we did. And she asked me to please do a song in Spanish for her mom, Graciela Zimmerman, uh, who is in Israel. And, um, and yes, yeah, so I picked Besame Mucho. And why not? I would like to dedicate this song to all the moms in the world hoping you are fine and you're uh, in security and in good health. So this is Besame Mucho, which means kiss me a lot. Embrace moi beaucoup. Besame, besame mucho Como si fuera esta noche la última Bésame, bésame mucho Que tengo miedo a perderte, perderte después Quiero tenerte en mis brazos, mirarme en tus ojos, verte junto a mí Piensa que tal vez mañana ya ya estaré lejos, muy lejos y aquí. Bésame, bésame mucho, como si fuera esta noche.
Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service. If you're listening at 2 p.m. on our phone line, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.